0: Uh, Psalm 106 is where we will be this morning. Psalm 106. We, of course, have been doing some thinking about denomination, specifically the doctrines that kind of identify us denominationally, but I didn't want to do that this morning. There are just so many people gone for this Thanksgiving holiday, and I'm at that point in the Sunday School series where I'm talking, beginning to talk about some end-time events, and that always generates a tremendous amount of interest. and so i just uh, didn't didn't want to didn't want to tackle that In in conjunction with that by the way and i'm sure that there will be others i've already received a couple of questions just from the little bit i've said uh, about end time events so i think probably what i'm going to do is just work through the sunday school material and uh, then whatever questions i have that come from that i think maybe i'll just take a Sunday school time and just try to walk through them um, and address them as I'm sure you know some of them are not the questions but you know just many of the issues pertaining to the end time are incredibly difficult to to establish and to you know there, there are just so many different Verses that address it, and we tend to attach so varying degrees of importance to different verses. And so uh, I'm sure that nothing will ever be addressed on this side to everybody's satisfaction, but that's kind of what I'm doing. So anyway, I, I thought that, and it just it's my intention for all the services this morning, uh, to deal with uh, a, a psalm, uh, <clears throat> not to be in any way dismissive of the psalms, they, but they do incline to direct our attention to uh, the subject of this holiday, thanksgiving and gratitude, and so they're doubly a benefit. Let's pray, and we'll turn our attention to Psalm 106 this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and the variety of ways in which you have communicated it to us. And I pray for myself and for us that we would be uh, instructed through poetry, that we would understand it properly and think about it rightly. Father, some of our most beloved passages come from the Psalms and the poems. We pray your blessing and your instruction in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Psalm 106 this morning, just a couple things by way of introduction before we turn our turn our attention to it, Uh, you might have a note in your Bible, Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 are really companion psalms. They they kind of mirror each other. They fit together. So very beautifully, they're both the same length as far as the number of verses. Um, Psalm 105 emphasizes the goodness of God. That is its focus on the kindness of God to the people of Israel. And Psalm 106 kind of emphasizes Israel's sinfulness. I, I'm going to take the position this morning that that is not the main point of the psalm, right? It's not just a lambast of Israel's failures, but it is an honest assessment of them and and what they mean. <clears throat> so that's Psalm 105 and 106. You Also, depending upon the kind of Bible you have, you may have a, you may have some kind of a note or a marker. I have one in mind, but Psalm 106 is the end of Book Number Four of the Psalms. The the Psalms themselves, the 150 Psalms, are divided into four distinct books. Um, so, Psalm 1 through 41 are the first book of Psalms. 42 through 72 are the second book, 73 through 89 are the third book, 90 through 106 are the fourth book, and 107 through 150 are the fifth book of the Psalms, so books 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And uh, there's a lot of material written and discussion about the nature of the five books and the way that they fit together. Um. Some people argue that they are reflective of things taught in the Pentateuch. You have five books in the Pentateuch and then five books in the Psalms. Um, and and then others see, not not to the exclusion of one or the other, but some also associate them with Israel's five feasts, which are Passover, Pentecost, Trumpets, Tabernacles, and Purim. And so, again, there's there's a lot of academic discussion about that. That is not... You know we're not going to get into that. That is quite honestly probably something I will never <clears throat> ever 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 address with us very much as a as a church is you know trying to sort through them. but it but it's out there you can you can go to the internet, find all kinds of information about it. We do not know who wrote this psalm. Uh, there is no author attached to it. but I think that we will see from the context or from the content of the psalm, that it comes late in Israel's history. It is it is a psalm written during the captivity or perhaps even after the captivity. But it, it certainly is aware of that period of time in Israel's history. So and it, and it's not acquainted with that time prophetically like Isaiah would be, but it's acquainted with that time historically. So this psalm comes somewhat. After that. <clears throat> um, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, th- th- kind of the mirror to Psalm 105 <clears throat> is that 105 is almost exclusively about God's kindness and His action and His goodness. Um, Psalm 106 is heavy upon Israel's unfaithfulness um, and failings before the Lord. But again, I don't think that's really the main point uh, of the Psalm. And I am going to take the position that the main point of the psalm is celebrating the faithfulness of God in light of the failure of the Israelites. Um, and so, I, you know, I, admittedly, it's perhaps a little bit of an unorthodox theme of gratitude, but it is, it is never hurtful for us to remember that God is faithful to us in spite of our failings. Um, and that doesn't excuse or defend our failings, but it is a consolation to us in those failings. So, so let's turn our attention uh, to, this, to this long song that Israel would have sung. And, of course, we do not really know how they would have structured it or sung it, but uh, <clears throat> I'm just going to kind of walk through it in, in what seems to me to be the way that it kind of unfolds by idea. Verses 1 and 2, then, begin with a, a thoughtful question. Psalm 106, 1 and 2. Praise ye the Lord. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endureth forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? So here is, again, as I'm putting it, a thoughtful question. Praise the Lord, praise Jehovah, and give thanks to him. Because he is good, and his mercy endureth forever forever and i'm i'm guessing i don't know right off the top of my head but i'm just going to guess that if you're looking at an esv you don't have the word mercy you have the word steadfast love which is the way that they're translating um, the hebrew word there in our king james bible is almost always mercy and it has the idea of god's continuing faithful love that's one of the reasons some translate it with steadfast love and and built into the very word it's just one hebrew word built into it is the concept of endurance which is why again in your king james bible you have endureth in italics it's not a hebrew word but it 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 is part of the meaning of the hebrew word his mercy endureth forever there is a continuity to the to the goodness of the lord And, and then upon that right his mercy endureth forever and again, I, I think that as we read through the psalm, we can kind of come back to verse number two and, and understand why he would ask this question. But here's the question that, are, that the psalmist asks. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who could, who could tell them all? Who could recount all the things that God has done? John said that his assessment was that if all the good that God had done was written down, the world couldn't hold the books. And here is the psalmist asking a similar question. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? And the idea, the the primary idea of the word show forth, interestingly enough, is to listen or to hear or to take in. So I think there's kind of a twofold dimension to the question that is being asked. If you were tasked to recite all that God had done that is good, who could do it? If we were allowed to listen and to partake of all that God had done that is good, we would not be able to receive it. We would be overwhelmed by it. So the psalm begins with a thoughtful question, which, again, I think is in the context of the failure of Israel's history. Right? It's, it's one thing to celebrate God being good to people who are on their best behavior, Um, But that is not the framework of this psalm. These are not people who are on their best behavior. Um, These are people who are oftentimes on their worst behavior. And yet, here is the Lord doing very good things for them. There is then, after the thoughtful question, there is, I think, in verses 3, 4, and 5, a thoughtful observation. And again, I think that it fits within the framework of, Of the psalm and and within the framework of our very real human frail existence. Verse number three Blessed are they that keep judgment and he that doeth righteousness at all times. And we know, folks, that there's a sense in which when we read those kind of statements in the Old Testament, we understand that they're only going to be fulfilled ultimately by Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is ever going to live to the epitome of the ideal. But here's the question. For here's the statement, Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that doeth righteousness at all times. Remember me, Lord. Remember me, Lord. With the favor that thou bearest unto thy people, O visit me with thy salvation, that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. So... (laughs) Blessed are those who are looking out to do that which is right is the idea. Blessed are those who are doing right when the opportunity to come comes and Number me among those that you bless those These should be the characteristics of your people right these I mean God didn't save Israel right I mean, you know, backing up big picture, God didn't save Israel, nor did He save us, so that we continue along the same track that we were previously living, that we continue in the same sins we were always committing, that we are just like the world from which we were rescued. We are, we are saved by God to be a holy people, unusual, different, peculiar, the, Bible, the King James Bible word. Um, right? So these, this, these are things that should then characterize the nation of Israel and the psalmist identifies himself with them. But then, in the bulk of the psalm, beginning in verse number 6, down through verse number 39, is the painful confession. Right? Who, who, could, who could tell all the good that God has done? Who could hear all the good that God has done? And God is good to those that are <clears throat> upright. And yet Israel has historically not been very upright. And I think that's the way that we should read it. I mean, look, folks, do we not know, we, we we know that it is a wonderful thing to be obedient. We know that it is a wonderful thing to be consecrated. We know that it is a wonderful thing, right? We know that it is a right thing to not dishonor the Lord with our mouths, with our thoughts, with our complaints, with our chronic unhappiness, with our chronic dissatisfaction with the way things are. We know, and yet there is a sense in times in which we feel hopelessly powerless to be anything other than unhappy, ungrateful, malcontented people who can tell all the good that God has done. And he is really good. He is really good. And yet, here is our painful confession. In verses six through thirty-nine track through the three major periods of Jewish history. The three major periods of Jewish history. <clears throat> you know, if you took an American history course, I'm. A, I, we I know we do it in high school. We did it when I was going to classes at UNO. We, broadly speaking, we divide American history along two trajectories up through the Civil War and after the Civil War. So when you get to the end of the first semester you're about the Civil War and when you come back second semester you're at the Civil War, finishing up two two major and then we kind of subdivide that. Right? We have different you know, we have the Roaring Twenties and right after the right after the successful resolution of the war with England, we enter into what we historians call the critical period you know, what's going to happen to us. Israel has Israel history unfolds along three major uh, tracks. One is in Egypt, and that's verses 6 through 12. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers, right? We are just like our fathers, and here is the sin of our fathers, verse number 7. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the Red Sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake that he might make his mighty power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness, and he saved them from the hand of him that hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then believed they his works, his words. They sang his praise. So the first major section that he works through is the period of time of their deliverance from Egypt. And, of course, we know that God had predicted, had told Abraham that he would go to Egypt and he would be, his people would be held captive for 400 years. Right? And so, right? So the psalmist, again, he is identifying himself with the people of God. Verses 3, 4, and 5 number me among those who do right. And we collectively have sinned. We have sinned just like our fathers did. Here was the sin of our fathers. We didn't understand the miracles. We didn't understand the miracles. <clears throat> we didn't really get what was going on. We didn't remember your mercies. And in fact, it wasn't until we got to the Red Sea itself that we understood what was happening. So that when Jesus rebukes people in general and the disciples in particular for being slow of heart and slow to understand, this is pretty common for us, folks. It's just, it's just pretty common for us to, to be relatively dull about those kinds of things. Again, I'm not defending us, and I'm not accusing any of you specifically. I'm just saying in general, right? the, the people of God do not at the time appreciate what God is doing, and this was his testimony. In, verse, in Beginning then in verse number 13 and down through verse number 33, he moves into the second major phase of Jewish history, from Egypt to the wilderness. To the wilderness. <clears throat> and you'll notice how he transitions there. Verse number 12. Then believed they his words and sang his praise. You can go back in the book of Exodus and read about that. Right? This is, this is anchored in historical fact. But they soon forget his works, verse number 13. And they waited not for his counsel. But lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. They envied Moses also in the camp, and Aaron the saint of the Lord. The earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. And a fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. They forgot Gad their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, terrible things, which has the idea of being awesome by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Yea, they despised the pleasant land. They believed not his word, but murmured in their tents, and hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. Therefore he lifted up his hand against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their seed also among the nations, and to scatter them in the lands. But they joined themselves also unto Baal-peor, and ate the sacrifices of the dead, Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions and the plague break in among them. Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes, because they provoked his spirit so that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. And this, of course, we know, folks, was... Approximately forty years of one of the most wretched times in Jewish histories. Jewish history. Without going back and rereading it, let me let me just point out to you the way the the, the, the psalmist maps out some of their sins. Verse number thirteen: Our memory of your good works quickly faded. Our memory of your good works quickly faded. Verses 14 and 15, we were displeased with your provision. And so we acted in haste and suffered your displeasure. Verses 16, 17, and 18, we envied your decisions and the leaders you placed over us. Verses 19 and 20, we practiced idolatry. Verses 21 through 27, we lived as unbelievers. Verses 28 through 31, we apostatized and practiced idolatry. And verses 32 through 33, we revolted at your authority. These are the sins of God's people. These are the things, by the way, folks, that Paul cautions us about in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10. He goes back into that period of Jewish history and reminds us, marvel upon marvel, that those things happen for our instruction. So that it's not just ancient history to us. It is modern theology applied. And we are inclined, again, I'm not making an accusation against any of you, I'm just saying that it is the natural tendency of most people to forget God's past kindnesses, to be critical of his provision, to be envious of the position of others, to turn to idolatry, even if we won't call it idolatry, to live as unbelievers to turn away from the faith and to revolt against his authority. These are all things that people can do. These are all things that the New Testament church is charged with addressing and charged with a fairly regular basis. Remind the the people that they need to be submissive. Remind the people that they need to be submissive to rightful authority. Remind the people not to be envious of what others have or the way God uses them. Remind the people not to stray from the faith. I mean, people are people, folks. We, our, our fundamental nature, our fundamental problems do not change. So there is first the, their period of time in Egypt, one of their major historical settings. There is their time in the wilderness. And then verses 34 through 39, there is their time in the land of Canaan, in the land of promise. They did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but were mingled among the heathen and learned their works, and they served their idols which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus were they defiled with their own works and went to whoring with their own inventions. This one is fairly easy. There there is a one-word description of verses 34 through 39, and that is the word assimilation. When they went into the land of Canaan, folks, as heartless as this sounds, they went into the land of Canaan and they had a very clearly stated mission Doesn't resonate well with American ears, but it was their mission nevertheless. Kill every man, woman, and child you find. You're going to live in the land, and you're going to live in the land as a pure people. And they did not do that. And what ended up happening, folks, was exactly what God told them would happen, and exactly what God told them could not happen, and that is that they became like the people in the land. and they didn't stop worshiping jehovah and they didn't abandon the temple they just brought it all together right they just brought it all together We were, we, were, we were, I was at my, one of my son-in-law's house yesterday. We were watching a football game, and I just said to the guys, and I know that this is going to come across as judgmental, but, but it's, a, it's a question I don't know that we have. A, what do you say about a man who has the word Christ tattooed on his arm? Is that good or bad? How do we, how do we interpret that? To identify with Christ is a good thing. To be tatted up is not. We didn't, nobody learned that from the Bible, folks. We learned, even if you go, well, that was in the Old Testament. So what? It was nevertheless frowned upon. How do we interpret that? How do we interpret that? And here, here is God's condemnation of them. All those years in the wilderness, what does he say? You became like those people after I told you not to be like them. And that brings us then in the psalm to verses 40 through 46 to God's response to those people. What did he do? Right? After a trajectory of centuries, beginning in Egypt, tracking through 40 years of the wilderness, tracking through centuries of assimilation in the land of Canaan, Verse number 40, therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against his people insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. And he gave them into the hand of the heathen. This is the judgment. You like them, you want to be like them, you won't listen to me when I told you to not be like them, you may have them. They are yours, but you are theirs. He gave them into the hand of the heathen. And they that hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry and remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captives. This is the response of the Lord. Merciful judgment. Judgment mingled with mercy. And I know I've mentioned this, folks, a couple times. We'll, we'll look at it Wednesday night when we return to the Lamentations. But in the midst of all the devastation that God visits upon the nation of Israel, and Lamentations is the, the culmination of it all, the, the observation of the utter destruction, the day of the Lord in Israel's sense, Jeremiah points out that his heart was never in it. He did it. He did it, but his heart wasn't in it. And you have a a reflection of that here. He did it. He abhorred his inheritance. I mean, just imagine, folks, right? I mean, let's just just take a little mental excursion to have a child who is so wayward, whose behavior is so reprehensible, that you find yourself developing very harsh feelings towards your own child. He abhorred his inheritance. And yet, what does he do? And yet, what does he do? He reaches out to them in pity, which brings us then to verses 47 and 48, to the petition, a faithful petition. All right? What is the looking back upon the history of this people this is what the psalmist is doing he was never in egypt he was never in the wilderness he was probably never perhaps never in the promised land he's just looking back upon this what what is his request save us o lord our god and gather us from among the heathen right so that we know right i mean there's no discussion about the time frame of this psalm folks it is post captivity Save us, O Lord our God, gather us from among the heathen, to give thanks unto thy holy name, and to triumph in thy praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise ye the Lord. So the prayer is that God would save them, and deliver them, and that he would gather them, because they have been scattered, they have been scattered. So that we may give thanks to your name because you are our eternal refuge. This is how the psalm closes. All right, so just a, a couple of points, folks, and I guess we're going to get done very early. I didn't know how long it would take to work through 48 verses. Psalm 103.2, which we're obviously not looking at, tells us to remember all of God's benefits bless the lord o oh my soul and forget not all his benefits so right we have hopefully in recent days been thankful to the lord for our families for the bounty he has given to us our nation our savior and these are all good and kind gifts from the lord but but there's one found in verse in psalm 106 folks that we want to add to the list of all of his benefits and that is his commitment to his name and covenant. This is genuinely where our hope is anchored, folks. Our, our hope is anchored in God's commitment to himself. For instance, go back to verse number eight. Right, as I mentioned, here's a psalm written during the captivity. Here is a psalm that is honest in its assessment and interpretation of the history of his people, right? No, no great flowery rewriting of Jewish history to turn them into this most wonderful people, but rather a people with a history of failure and disappointment. And yet, verse number 8, nevertheless, right? I mean, and again, you could, you could go back, folks, and read the accounts in the book of Exodus Read the accounts of God's frustration with these people. Nevertheless, verse number 8, he saved them for his name's sake. He saved them for his name's sake. And when God said to Moses, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just, I'm going to take them all out and I'm going to start over with you. Right? That was part of Moses' reaction was, well, what about your name? You know, you're, you're the one that said you were going to save this people. And now if you don't save this people, how are you going to look if you don't save this people? So nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. And this is something, folks, that we can always count on when we're thinking about God and talking to the Lord. Again, let me just... None of these passages are designed to give us some kind of wiggle room for our own misconduct. But they are to remind us of how God, can I put it this way? How God thinks. How God thinks. Over the course, folks, of building a life and building a marriage, you learn how your partner thinks. Or hopefully you're learning how your partner thinks. It would be good if you learned how your partner thought. Can I put it that way? It would be good for your marriage if you put a little time and effort into thinking about how your partner thinks. Even if you don't think that way, my wife and I think radically differently about a million things. We just we're just two different people. We approach things two different ways. That's not, that's not the issue. Right? But giving consideration to how the other person thinks is helpful. right? here's how God thinks. He is always going to be energized by the sake of his own name. And we don't just simply observe that. We will come to this in a few weeks a little bit down the road. But but God's activity for the sake of his own name is something that is supposed to help us to know how to behave and how to think and how to act and how to pray for the sake of his name. So there it is, verse number 8. His commitment to himself... Secondly, there's one other thing I think that is seen in, in the passage that is instructive to us along those lines. God's commitment to his name, and that is found in verse number 23. His commitment to a mediator. His commitment to a mediator. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. So there is a sense, folks, in which his commitment to his name, verse number 8, is tied to his use of a mediator. So just, you you know where I'm going with this, but but turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 3. Because just as David is the precursor to the greater king, Moses is the precursor to the greater mediator. Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house, For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm unto the end and then jump ahead to Hebrews chapter 8 verse number 1 now of the things which we have spoken this is the sum we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the lord pitched and not man For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. And, of course, we're talking here about Melchizedek, not about Moses. Melchizedek is the high priest. Christ is patterned after him. Moses was never the high priest, always the mediator. But verse number 5, "...who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things." as moses was admonished of god when he was about to make the tabernacle for see saith he that thou make all things according to the pattern show to thee in the mount so god's commitment to his name folks and salvation through his name involves god's use of a mediator and christ or moses was instrumental as the mediator in god sparing the people I mean, the psalm, is, the, the psalm is very clear about that. And, and the book of Exodus and Numbers reveal the, the intercessory work of Moses on behalf of the people. But again, he is the precursor, the, the shadowing of the great mediator Christ. So God saves us for the sake of his name and does not destroy us for the sake of his name, but he does that through the work of his mediator. Jesus Christ and right, again this is stuff that we all know this is not new to us but it is the cause of gratitude Right that, that Christ experienced all of God's wrath at our sin that's, that's real and substantial that is not just God going don't worry about it it's okay It is a very real God putting all of his anger upon his son because of all of our transgressions. And that, I think, is the framework of the psalm. Again, it's a psalm of gratitude, um, but gratitude-oriented in a particular way towards God's kindness to the people and their sinfulness. So, All right, we're going to stop there.